Steve Jobs was the founder of Apple Computers. He was largely the force behind the iPhone that many of you will have in your pocket right now. And Steve Jobs was really big about intuition. In fact, one of his big leadership principles in those endeavors was sort of follow your intuitive heart leadings. The story is told that his design team had worked for nine months to build the shell of the first uh, Apple iPhone. And when he picked it up and felt it, he simply said, it's not right. He looked at it and felt it and said, we have to be able to do better than this. And there was some intuitive sense that he had that this, this thing wasn't going to go. And I tell you that story today to say that in my early formation as a believer, the idea of spiritual discernment sort of had the same tone. In the circles that I was running in, you were told, you should understand the gospel really well, and then you'll know it's counterfeits without any specifics behind that. And you're also told that if you had the gift of discernment when you heard something or read something that wasn't in accord with the truth of the gospel, you would have this sort of intuitive sense of dis-ease. Now, I don't want to discount all intuition and discernment. Uh, my wife has great intuitive antenna. I have almost nothing like nubs for, for intuitive things. And so I think today we want to look at the scripture that we have before us as we go through 1 John and say that the Apostle John gives us in the Word of God a, a much more firm footing for discernment than simply intuition. And you know that our theme as we go through 1 John is that you may know that you know, that you may know Christ and know that you know him. And that involves knowing the difference between truth and error. And so we're calling this message Discernment 101. And if you have your worship guide, I'll ask you to look at page 12. It's also on the screen. You can use the worship guide or you can look up at the screen as we read 1 John Chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And our takeaway message for today is this, is that you will overcome, if you're in Christ, you will overcome as you test the spirits. You'll overcome as you test the spirits. Now, to build that case, the first thing that we want to do is to acknowledge that there is spiritual truth and error. What you see is, John, as he is wont to do in his letter, 
is dividing things up into sort of polarities. And he says, uh, there is the spirit of God, which is the spirit of truth, and everything that comes out of that with a right confession of who Jesus is, um, that is the spirit of truth. And then in contrast to that, he says that there's, in the last verse there, is a spirit of error, is the spirit of the Antichrist, which we talked about in chapter 2, and it's the spirit of the false prophets. You'll remember that some people had gone out of the fellowship of the church and were teaching things that weren't true, and, and John is addressing those. And what he's saying is that behind uh, all the lies that could be made about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all the deception, there's a spiritual reality. And, and this comes from Satan and all demonic spirits that are associated with him on one side, and then from God the Father and Son with the Holy Spirit motivating a confession of Christ that is uh, the, the Spirit of God that motivates that. And part of the challenge for us as Westerners is to really believe that there is a reality behind the things that we see and hear that's spiritual and that our battle is not, first of all, against flesh and blood. Now, how do, you, how do you do this? Test the spirits. There's all this language in here about spirits. And all my animus friends in Africa just love this because they, you know, they know there's a spirit behind every bush. But for us in the West, it seems uh, a little unusual. I want to illustrate this point by telling a story about Jesus. If you remember in Mark, uh, Jesus is about to turn and go towards Jerusalem uh, in the middle to a little bit beyond in that book. And he says to his disciples, who do the people say I am? And they say, well, some people say Elijah and some people say John the Baptist. But Jesus says, what about you? Who do you say I am? And, and Peter famously speaks up and says, you're the Christ. All right. And then Jesus goes immediately on in the book of Mark to say to them, well, the Christ has to suffer at the hands of the chief priests and the teachers of the law, die, be killed, and be raised on the third day. And Peter pulls him aside and begins to rebuke him. And then Jesus turns to Peter and famously says, get behind me, Satan. And so what you see there is, is Jesus addressing Peter, not as a person who is possessed, by a personal, powerful, a demonic entity, but whose narrative that he picked up, some of the narrative came from Scripture and was a misunderstanding of Scripture about how Jesus would be enthroned as King and Messiah. But he was all tangled up and twisted. And what Jesus was able to see and discern in that is that the same temptations that Satan had been giving him all along, hey, you're the Messiah, you're the King, but you don't have to suffer. Just work with me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. That same temptation was coming through the mouth of Peter. And so you can see there this idea of what spirit are you speaking of? Or what spirit are you speaking from? What line of reasoning or thinking are you going down? Are you parroting? Is it, is it consistent with a confession of Christ that's accurate? Or is it something else? And Peter's was decidedly not accurate at that point in terms of the, the mission of Jesus that he was on. So are you with me about this, about testing the spirits? It's what kind of message 
are you hearing? So as we apply this, we want to really think, as I'm listening, as I'm reading, as I'm hearing, am I aware that there are spiritual forces that are giving messages that can be carried along by innocence in a way, just by parroting what they've heard, that influence the church either towards Jesus or away from him. And that really is uh, what's going on at this point uh, in this text. And so is it possible that you and I, like Peter, could have a confession, a true confession of who Christ is given to us by the Holy Spirit. The other text says, this wasn't revealed to you by any man but by my Father. But at the same time, be parroting something that is consistent with the Antichrist. It happened to Peter, didn't it? And so we just want to hold that up in our minds, that there's a spirit of truth and a spirit of error. And we want to keep before us, as Owen intimated earlier, the only thing that's fashionable in our culture right now is to make everything gray. There's nothing black or white. It's all gray. uh, Almost the only way you can get in trouble is to say, I know this for certain. But, But John's not letting us do that. He's saying there's truth and there's error. There's the Spirit of God and there's the Antichrist. So the first point that we want to make here is acknowledging the spiritual reality behind the things that you hear and read and some of the things that you even say that might not be consistent with the gospel. The second thing that you you see here is that John enjoins us to apply the test, to test the spirits. That's that's the, the command in this text is test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, in this situation of what or in what does this test consist? It says in verse 2, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And this phrase, Jesus Christ has come, when it's used in the Johannine literature, in the Gospel of John and other places, really talks most often about the work of Christ, his mission and what he did in living sinlessly and dying as a substitute for sinners and being raised to life and ascended to glory. So it's his work. And then that he has come in the flesh, meaning that he is the eternal Son of God who became man, and he is fully God and fully man. So there's two aspects of this. It's Jesus, or do you have a confession of Jesus' person, who he is, and his work that is accurate? And if so, if that's what you're confessing, if that's what you're propagating, the person and work of Christ, then that is what the Spirit of God attends. And that's what the Spirit of God is propagating. And if you're on some sort of diversion, then you're, you're on a track that can be with the Antichrist. So you have to apply this test and really think about it. Now, what do we do with that? What do we make of that test? Well, there are some obvious uh, targets for this. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses clearly do not have an orthodox view of who Jesus is. They're out of bounds of salvation based on saying that Christ is only a man. The Mormons do not have an orthodox uh, view of either Jesus' person 
or his work, and they're out of bounds. And then when you look at, at the rest of world religions, what you find is that, you know, Islam may affirm that Jesus is a prophet, but he's not the eternal son of God become man who lived perfectly and died sinlessly as a substitute for sinners, who was raised to life, and who has the power to reconcile us to God. And so you either have coming out of those various kinds of religions a performance view of getting near to God. You better do it right, and you better do it all the time. You better knock on the doors. You better get rid of the infidels or a way of negation. You better sit and empty your brain and just negate yourself, and you'll be saved and sort of drift back into the, to the universe as a whole. Now, I, I, I don't want to go into all that, but this is good news. The good news is that there really is life in Christ. There really is forgiveness of sins that's not based on performance or negation, but on the work of the Son of God. That, that the sinless one really lived and died and rose, and he offers as a gift of grace through faith, faith alone and Christ alone, by grace alone, I can be forgiven, I can be declared righteous, not just forgiven, but also declared righteous with the righteousness of Christ. I can be adopted and reconciled to God. I can have the Holy Spirit and walk in union forever with the risen Christ. And so you have something to say to people of all persuasions that are caught in either merit or negation. And so, you know, later as we, as we put this online and, and everything, we, we really want to invite people to consider who Jesus is. Now, to me, those are the sort of easy targets for applying this text because um, most of you aren't going to the Jehovah's Witness thing and then coming here, um, and, and those aren't considerations for you. But the question I would want to, to pose here is, how have evangelical Protestants like us parroted, rehearsed, adopted things that are not consistent with the person and work of Christ? And I'll probably get in trouble over some of this, but you just have to take a shot at it. And I would say that the primary, the primary defect in our theology about the person and work of Christ is to take Jesus as a life coach for the American way. Now, you know, you, we've been over this before, but it, it creeps back into all of us very easily. And so I would be willing to bet that most of us have either seen or read the book on how the Bible tells you to pray in seven easy steps for your wayward child or grandchild that ensures that they will come to Christ. 10 steps to have a wonderful, vibrant, joyful marriage from the Bible. 27 leadership principles to make you the biggest leader in the world that came from the Bible. 15 ways from Proverbs that you can run your business that will guarantee that you're going to have an effective and solid business. And, and my favorite... Um, the Bible diet plan. <laughs> now, I, I want to go on record as saying the, the Bible speaks to, I think, all those things that I just mentioned. 
everything I mentioned except the diet plan, um, I think the Bible really speaks to those matters. And it speaks with wisdom and it speaks with authority. We don't want to rip the Bible out of your hands. The problem is when you take it as a handbook for prospering your, your quiet life of peace and affluence. You see, then Jesus is my life coach. He tells me 10 principles. I take those as a guarantee that he is going to sovereignly work things out in my life. And so I just want to ask you the question, what if for God's glory you are going to be faithful and do everything the Bible says on your side of your marriage, but you're going to be married to a person who's difficult and you're going to have struggles your whole life until you die? Is God good in that situation? And, and we've adopted in many ways, in evangelical Christendom, this unorthodox position that really reduces Jesus from a Savior and Lord to a kind of life coach. And so you can take all those things that we just mentioned, and what's the point of those things? As you try to apply them, you will find yourself to be a broken sinner who can't do the things that God commends to you as either wise or lawful. And you'll find yourself running into circumstances that you don't have control over. And the whole issue then is to be broken, to be humbled, and to say, I've been joined, for those who believe, I've been joined to the risen Christ, and I walk with him in joy in the midst of all the circumstances that the Lord has put me in. And that's, that's the orthodox test of your confession. And so I just want to repeat one more time the application that we gave a minute ago. And I would say, I'll give you uh, my example of how I am guilty of this. I was walking in the door out here and somebody has lumbar disc disease and I think that their doctor is woefully slow in moving through that workup. And so there's a person who's suffering, 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 and they're, oh, go to PT, do this other thing. And so I'm watching them limp and everything, and so I'm just like, have you done this? Have you done this? Have you done this? Have you done this? Now, you can be, we can be merciful to ourselves. That, that can be a way of just trying to be practically helpful to somebody, right? But really what I want to do is fix their suffering. And what's the, go what's the gospel conversation that really needs to go with that? First of all, I can be humbled and not be the smartest doctor in the world who retired 11 years ago, right? And my primary purpose isn't to fix you, but to say, how is Jesus meeting with you and giving you patience and joy as the risen Christ as you walk through this suffering? Is it being too hard on myself to say I was on the track of Peter? I just think we want to be careful. And again, we don't want to be too rigid that you can never give anybody any practical advice or have those kinds of things. But what's the drumbeat of our hearts? The drumbeat of our hearts has to be the narrative of Scripture. That God made everything good. That now everything's broken because of sin. And that Christ has come to save real sinners and to renew all things. That He's King and Lord. And what He's calling us to do is to walk in union with Him by the Holy Spirit as forgiven and justified sinners 
who are adopted and who are headed for glory. And that we would long for glory more than the fixing of the circumstances of our lives. So, to me, that is the application of this text about testing the spirits given to evangelical Protestants like us. So we want to take that to heart. And I want to leave, I just want to leave that point and move on to to the last point by saying, uh, don't let me be too hard on you. If you've been doing that, Jesus is a friend for sinners. Believe on him. Trust him. See, here I am right now. I was just doing that kind of thing 15 minutes ago. But God really loves me. Jesus is my righteousness. And I can turn back and say, Lord, will you make my conversation more gospel-centered and Christ-centered and resurrection from the dead and hope-centered? Because that's where we want to see is that you're going to overcome. You will, as you understand the spiritual reality behind things, as you test the spirits to see, is this line of thinking leading me down to value the eternal Son of God become flesh and salvation through him by grace and through faith alone and union with him in walking in this life. I'm testing the spirits in that way. And then I want to be able to say, you will overcome. We will overcome. And if you look at this text, it says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. And the the tense of this verb, I think, needs to be really hammered here. This is a tense of something that is a completed action that has a present impact. Not that you will or might overcome, but that if you're joined to Christ, you have overcome and it has a present impact on who you are, how you speak, and how you think, and how you walk out this life with him. Because Jesus had said in John 16, 33, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. So the overcoming comes through the victory of Christ and being joined to him, again, as a gift by grace and through faith. So we really, in as much as we have have insisted that suffering is constitutive of the Christian life, that we will suffer, we also want to celebrate and say that we are overcomers, those who are in Christ. Not that we will overcome, but that we have overcome in the risen Christ. This is why Paul can say at the end of his uh, order of salvation that you've been glorified in the past tense. That that it's something that's already happened, that you've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And so this is, brothers and sisters, where we want to direct our conversation. And I want to invite you to do this with me when I'm whining about my circumstances And I want you to invite you in your small groups and with one another to do it with one another gently and not legalistically, but listen carefully, be present with people. And then the question is, how are you meeting with the risen Christ in the middle of what you're going through? How are you experiencing the truth of his life, death, resurrection, and his indwelling in you by the Holy Spirit? Is the Spirit speaking to you, speaking comfort to you through the Word? Is He pouring the love of God into your heart? You see, these are the, the, the means by which God walks out a group 
of overcomers. So let me just give you uh, an illustration from a book that I read about walking with God. I didn't read the book. Somebody gave me the illustration. Anyway, a book about walking with God in the middle of, of suffering. Um, there's a story of a, a young couple. Uh, their names were Russ and Sue, and they had been high-powered, both of them, in their jobs for the first 10 years of their marriage. Uh, soaring, affluent, sometimes, you know, knocked down by the economy and then getting back on their feet and soaring again until after about 10 years, Sue was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Hodgkin's lymphoma. And so <clears throat> that Hodgkin's lymphoma really should be eminently treatable. It has a very high survival rate, but she was treated and they, they killed off and brought forth a clone of lymphoma cells that was really particularly aggressive. So she was treated and then had lymphoma again in a way that was particularly lethal and aggressive. So she had to undergo a bone marrow transplant. Now these were people that knew Christ and they suffered through all this chemotherapy and she came out in remission. And then a year after that remission, because of the chemotherapy necessary to do a bone marrow transplant, she developed pulmonary fibrosis, and it was advancing pulmonary fibrosis. So then what, was, what she had to go through was a double lung transplant. So she, she underwent a double lung transplant, and it was able to make it out of the hospital. And their testimony was that when God had stripped them of everything, and had, they had gone through this ringer, that the very day they came home together from the hospital, they met with the Lord, and he so poured his love abroad in their hearts that they were filled with peace, joy, the love of God, the presence of Christ, in a way that they will remember for the rest of their lives. It was an experiential knowledge of the risen Christ in the midst of their suffering that absolutely transformed their life from then on in walking with Christ. Now, as I give you that illustration, there's no guarantees of when or how that comes. But the one thing that we can say about overcoming is that God has poured his love into the hearts of believers right in the midst of suffering by the Holy Spirit whom he's given to us. And you can take that to the bank you can't take to the bank that he'll heal you, that he'll fix your business, that he'll do these other things, but you can take to the bank that when you sit and wait and watch and ask, that the Holy Spirit will assure you of the love of God. Not necessarily in your time, but it will happen. And you then will be walking out this overcoming life that has been given to you in Christ. So, brothers and sisters, we really have a very good news for the world. And that is that, that Christ is a fully sufficient Savior. And that when you test the spirits, you don't have to be like Steve Jobs, Jobs. You don't have to be like Steve Jobs, sort of relying on, is this right or is this wrong? That one of the primary tests is, does what I'm thinking, saying, hearing lead me to faith in Christ, repentance, and joy in being joined with him as I walk through this life. And, and when you're on that track, you know you're interpreting the scriptures the right way, and you know that you're walking out a life of overcoming. So overcome, you will overcome as you test 
the spirits. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for this word today. And Lord, we want to pray that you would uh, fill us with that joy and peace and believing that we've talked about even today. Um, Lord, if, if we have adopted you, Jesus, as a life coach, who's just going to help us along with um, our, our peace and quiet, uh, we're sorry. We're sorry for the places that we've done that. And we want to walk with you through everything that you put in front of us by faith and with joy and to overcome in you in the end. So we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.